Welcome to Godsplaining, contemplative preachers, contemporary age. Each week, join the Dominican friars as they consider all things Catholic. Hello, friends, and welcome back to Godsplaining. I'm your host today. Well, we sort of had a musing on the what it means to host. There are two hosts. We're always co-hosting. Anyway, uh, my name is Father Patrick Mary Briscoe, and I'm joined today by Father Bonaventure Chapman. How are you, Father Bonaventure? I'm doing great. Father Patrick, how are you doing? I'm delighted to be here, because uh, I think we've got a really fun topic today. Yeah. I think that, uh, so in the summertime, so today's topic is the stars. I just got to start with that. Um, today's yeah. topic is the stars. And why do I want to talk about the stars? Well, because in the summertime, um, as a child, well, and still to the present day, in fact, my family vacations um, on a lake in northern Indiana, and we've, we've done this for a very long time. And one of the remarkable parts of being outside away from the city in the summertime is the clarity that you have of the night sky. Mm-hmm. And this is imprinted on me. I mean, at other times of the year, the night sky's certainly clear, but, but I would always see the night sky clearly in the summertime. I don't know if, do you have similar kinds of summertime memories, Father Bonham? I do. One of the worst parts about living in a city, among the many worst parts, is that uh, you can't ever see stars. Like, there's just the North Star. That's it. But um, in, the, yeah, in the summer in Buffalo, obviously Buffalo was, you know, not as an active city as other places were when I was growing up. But out my, I have family out in Wyoming, so I got I, one of the great parts about going to Wyoming is you're in the middle of nowhere. Um, and at night, it's, I mean, you, you don't need lights, you, I've, you just forget how many stars there are. It's as long as it's a, if it's a clear night, the sky is full of these things, absolutely full of them. Um, obviously, an infinite number, because then there'd be nothing but stars. So we know there's finite a finite number of them. We don't know what it is though. Um, but it's it's absolutely gorgeous, absolutely gorgeous. Yeah. So I think like well, certainly when you're a child, but but even now, I mean, I would hope that everyone who's listening would have a point in time in their summer where they're away from the hustle and bustle, where they're away from city lights, where they're out, uh, you know, maybe at a farm or uh, at, at a lake uh, where you have time to look up in the night sky. Okay, why, why do I think that looking up at the night sky is important? Well, because I, I think for ancient people, um, the stars were a source and object of wonder, right? To look up at the stars um, it is to marvel. And I think that's still true, and we, we could talk a little bit about that. But, uh, you know, so, some of the fundamental positions about the stars are interesting, like Aristotle, uh, for example, thought that the stars were made out of a very special matter. They were made out of star matter for Aristotle. He called it the ether. Um, so the stars were a kind of other thing, right? I mean, it, well, yeah, loosely speaking, roll with me here, Father Bonaventure. I got you. Uh, you know, the, the, so it's the ether, it's the star matter, whatever that is exactly. Uh, but, but it's unlike it, the, the heaven, the, the, the things that are in the heavens are unlike the things that are on the earth. Hmm. Um, yeah, I mean, for for Aristotle and the, the ancients, the the stars are are kind of the gods, right? They have there's a worshipness to them, um, and the clo- the the biggest star, of course, is the sun. And I remember I had a, a a good friend of mine who directed my thesis at Oxford was a Jesuit, uh, is a Jesuit, Martin Father Martin Molesky, and we were talking about just kind of natural worship and such. And he said to me, and I, I've always remembered this. He said, you know, if uh. Yeah, if I didn't believe in God, the Christian God, I would worship the sun. Would definitely worship it because I can see everything by it. Uh, it warms everything. Uh, everything that has life in it is everything that has life is due to the sun in some way or the other because of mm. the way it does photosynthesis, the animals, the way you know he, heat, all sort of. So like, 
every yeah basically everything material and natural is from the sun so it's you know you think old people you know the old the ancients are stupid by worshiping the sun and sun god and all this kind of thing um but when you know when you start to think about it you think well yeah that gives us everything okay except existence um but essay is you know it's hard to find but everything else is <laughs> so that yeah so you so you put the sun at the center of your universe then yeah, it seems uh, like, you know, and you've got right these other there. stars, little, you know, and you've got the moon, and he's kind of like the sun, but a little smaller, and then and you've got these other things around there, and you think, my gosh, of course these are gods, you know, because ancient people weren't stupid, they didn't think that gods were like, I mean, everyone thinks the Homeric gods of, you know, jealousy sort of things, but ancient philosophers knew that gods weren't like this, and the stars and the sun and the moon, they, these are, these are godable, like, these are, these are, like, papables, you know, could be made pope, these are godable, like, these are things that could be... <laughs> could be gods it's it's perfectly conceivable uh on on that mindset and so they were really important to to other people but obviously um we're not ancient people and the ancient people were dumb and uh we know what stars are now and that's all that matters so they're just not that important right elsewhere on the yeah something like that uh, i <laughs> to defy that a little bit but it's, uh, in another episode on the podcast father bonaventure and i talked about the shift of like the ancient worldview um and a, a kind of stepping out of ancient cosmology. And we see that uh, in the Catholic tradition, this, the, the, the challenge of um, the view of the heavens and of ancient cosmologies comes up in a, very, in a very pointed and direct way in the case of Galileo Galilei. Now, to the point of today's episode is not to rehearse everything that, um, that Galileo is doing, but Father Bonaventure, can you tell us a little bit about what he, what he says about the stars, how his views are different, um, and what that means for our consideration of the stars. Sure, sure. And then, um, so I want to, should I, should I frame it first with um, some of the, some, we could say, uh, Hegelian dialectics to structure Yeah, actually, that would, be, that would be helpful. Okay. Um, so, I can't believe so, I just admitted that. that yeah. Like, so, I mean, you know, it takes a lot of truth to float in error. And, uh, you know, <laughs> blind squirrels fly, fall, find a nut, whatever you want to say. But Hegel points out this interesting point about dialectic. Uh, that dialectic is a progressive movement of of uh, coming coming back to something that you originally negated. So it's double negation is his move for it. What he means by that is you start out with a position, and then you attack the position and, and realize it's wrong. So thesis, then antithesis. But then everyone thinks, oh, the synthesis, the third move, is just the combination of the thesis and the antithesis. And it's not really that. The third move, the synthesis, is actually going back to the first position again, but seeing it in a new light. So the thesis, the original position, was right. Paul Ricoeur, a French phenomenologist and psychologist who wrote a really, has written a number of great books, called this the move from first naivete to critical position to then second naivete. And I find it just a profoundly helpful framework, schema, to understand what it means to live past modernity. Because in so many of these in so many of these experiences, like with the stars or anything materially wise, we have an old view, the ancient view, and then we have the, the ancient view attacked and pilloried by the modern view. But the modern view will be found to be insufficient, and you can't go back to the old view as the old view per se. But you go back to the old view in a new way. So, for instance, the stars. Initially, we talked about Aristotle and thinking them as, as gods and this sort of thing, how that might be sort of reasonable. But obviously, when Galileo shows up and Newton and the boys, you know, with their with their um, astrolabes and their measuring devices and the telescope, you know, this really new invention that we just get used to. And you can 
do this on your phone, I suppose, now. But he realizes, like, Galileo's insight is that, hold on a second, these aren't other things. If these are gods and gods are material, because it turns out the stuff that's that makes up the moon and the stuff that makes up the stars is the same the same stuff. It's And then Newton, of course, Sir Isaac comes along and starts to come up with equations, just like equations for the stuff, the equations of motion on Earth are the same as the equations of motion on in space. You, so we're dealing with matter here in a certain way. So Galileo and the boys criticize the old guys in saying, demoting, you could say demoting the stars to mundane existence, which is a, a metonym, actually. Um, so they're, they're, just <laughs> like every, they're just like everything else. And that's now, the, the move, that's the critical position. Yeah. Now I think now I think what's really great here about um, the philosophical journey that we're describing, um, whether we're using uh, the Hegelian terms or, or Raykauer's terms of um, the movement from the first to second naivete, I love this because this is the this is the story of a homecoming. This is the mm. Odyssey. This this is every great story. This is um, this is the Hobbit there and back again. This this is this is the the story of everyone who leaves a home and is changed. Uh, by the journey they encounter. Uh, so so from the perspective of narrative, uh, I like this a lot. And that's what we're proposing we do today um, with the stars, actually, by thinking about um, the kind of ancient perspective and playing around a little bit a little bit with, uh, with what that means uh, in our own lives. So uh, to, to underscore this, I want to use a passage that Father Bonaventure brought up uh, from T.S. Eliot. Um, so I'm just going to read the, this this well, hold on phenomenal quote here. Can I say? Can I say? T.S. Oh, Eliot did his. So he was a banker for most of his life, obviously a poet. But he did his. Um, his he was going. He started his doctorate at, at Oxford under F.H. Bradley, who, as many of you will know, um, was the uh, great professor of metaphysics at Oxford during the early 20th century and a out and out Hegelian logician and metaphysician. So just saying. <laughs> you got to get your plug in there. Well, you we can make this pa the passage you're about to read. I think will make it sense. Go for it. That's right. That's right. So, so here we have T.S. Eliot. Um, this is from the Little Gidding, uh, which is in Four Quartets. We shall not cease from exploration until the end of all our exploring will be to arrive where we started and know the place for the first time. Through the unknown, remembered gate when the last of earth left to discover is that which was the beginning. At the source of the longest river, the voice of the hidden waterfall and the children in the apple tree, not known because not looked for, but heard, half heard in the stillness between two waves of the sea. I love that, that returning, that we're not, we're, we're exploring and we're looking for something, but turns out we're going to come back to the start and know it for the first time. So we're coming back to the place we started that we thought we knew, but we actually know it now for the first time. And that's that second naivete. And and there's something, there's, I mean, I think that is a lot of what our intellectual journey is about. Uh, and this is how I think we work forward from modernity, is going back to those original positions, but approaching them in an entirely new way. And this is what, for me, the the well, it's an exciting project, especially with the stars, because the stars play a big part in our revelation, in our account of scripture, and in 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 our lives. Like they're they're not just floating space dust that doesn't matter, right? They actually have something to say, but they're also not gods. So it's that second naivete we're kind of going to. 
That's right. No, thanks. I appreciate that a lot. Um, and the, you know, the stars, to use Eliot's words, the stars are the kinds of things are heard or half heard even, the kinds of things that we pass by in life that are muted, you know, as Father Bonaventure and I were mentioning at the top of the episode, um, that, that they're, they're tough to see from the, from the position of life, from city living from day to day, and yet they, they mean something very grand. So uh, let's, let's pause here. We'll take a short break, and when we get back, we'll, uh, we'll look at the stars, hopefully leading us uh, to them again, as if for the first time. You are listening to Godsplaining. Visit us at godsplaining.org to listen to our episodes, shop our store, and donate to our podcast. All gifts go to improving the podcast and bringing the gospel to more listeners. Thanks for your support. Hello, friends. Father Bonaventure and I are back here with you, uh, ready to uh, ready to really dive into the stars. Um, Father Bonaventure, just you know, off the top of your head, um, what is for you? Uh, what is for you? Do you think one of the most important places we see the stars in Scripture? To me, and because I, I grew up, uh, or at least I was I trained as a Calvinist for a while, um, covenant is a huge thing. So Abraham and Abram and the covenant. Uh, so Genesis twelve and fifteen, when God. Um, Abraham is kind of, he's been promised to have everyone and sands of the sea and all this kind of sands by the sea and all this. And he's going to have his big, but he's still kind of like, I don't have anyone. I don't have a son, this sort of thing. And he says, I don't know. You're, maybe you're giving up on me, God. And then so to so 15, he has the covenant swearing about going through the pot with the, the animals and the smelling and the carcasses and all those sort of things. But before <laughs> that, God, God says, look outside, look up, up into the sky. And as many as the stars are, as numerous as your descendants will be. And that so that that the so in the way that just like the rainbow is given to Noah to remind him of the covenant promises, so too the stars become an instrument, a real instrument of God's promises to Abraham. And remember, Abraham doesn't dwell um, in in you know Hong Kong or something. Like the stars are always around for him. He's in a he's in desert, you know. Um, so there's no other <laughs> lights. So every night, so every night he is reminded. Bla- clearly reminded of God's covenant to him because these things and it's and God what I say is the stars are significant in that that God could have picked couldn't have picked just anything I mean if he'd said the sand sand of the seas you can look at that it's like well you can't really count the sand it's kind of blobby or something and he couldn't say as many as these lizards are out the desert because there's you know he could count those he's like really that's it 20 100 maybe but the stars are this massive unaccountable multitude that are, are beautiful and draw you to them upwards and that so they are a real well a real instrument of his promises there so that's that passage always strikes me as 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 beautiful we we heard that recently actually um in a very mm-hmm. in a very prominent way in the life of the church during the holy father's visit to iraq this past spring um the holy father was there in iraq uh which is the land of ur the land where abraham um departs on his on his following of god's will um which which is really an incredible thing to to think that well this is the place this was the land um from which abraham went went out um in search of god and it was there um that the holy father said very directly um to to those who are gathered we are we are the descendants of abraham um that it mean that it means to follow uh, that, that that the following in faith uh, of the will of the lord means to be bound um means to be bound to Abraham and bound up in this covenant. Um, so, we, so we might have once had um, 
uh, Abraham certainly had a, a narrow understanding of lineage and descendants. Um, and for us to, to, to revisit this and to see in the stars uh, a place of belonging, a kind of fixedness for us and for our hearts uh, under the umbrella of the sky of faith is, is an incredible thing to say, well, th this, is our, this is our place. This is, this is where we belong. Mm. This is how we belong. That's right. Just like the covenant, the rainbow should remind us of God's promises never to, to flood or annul his covenant uh, to us today, even though we're not Noah. Um, same thing with the stars, that we, we partake in that covenant as well. And same thing when you, sip, when you split all your birds, and I mean, not all your birds, but all your animals, and you walk through them, you should always be reminded of that, of that covenant. But you probably don't split as many animals and walk through them as you do sea stars. So it's a little more... It's nice that he said he gave that too. You know the stars, There's not a, just uh, the yeah. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> There's a great for for me. I I like the the creation imagery. Um, you know, we could think of of, of course at Genesis. Um, you know, when the the first acts that the Lord is doing is separating the night and day, fixing the stars in the sky. Uh, and we can think of all of those things, but uh, but I like the appeals back to those first actions. Okay, so what am I talking about? I'm thinking of conversations in the Book of Isaiah. Uh, where where the Lord is mm -hmm. speaking to the prophet, or uh, even uh, even more directly, more violently, even uh, to Job, when Job is contesting the suffering he's going through, and the Lord God says uh, to Job, "Where were you, essentially, right, when I did all these things?" And then the Lord lists the the litany of everything that He's made, and in that litany of things, um, when God is recounting His creative work, He talks about making the constellations and fixing them in the skies. And Isaiah picks up on this, you know, and, and says, uh, To whom then will you compare me that I should be like him? Lift up your eyes on high and see who created these. He who brings out their hosts by number, calling them all by name, by the greatness of his might, because he is strong in power, not one is missing. So I, I love these, the, these, this creation imagery because it speaks of God's grandeur, you know, as immense and as striking as the stars are, the one who made them must be more so mm -hmm. uh, and and to think of the, to think of the reality that god knows the stars that he placed in there he knows them by name um i can i can point out in the night sky like three constellations you know i can do the big dipper and orion and you know a couple others but god knows all of the constellations of all of the stars uh and more clearly than knowing all of those things about the stars he knows the human heart yeah, and oh, uh, that's fantastic. We're gonna, I, we're gonna have to end with a quote from Kant that gets in both those things. Um, but <laughs> before we get there, I, I just I want I'm a philosopher, so I want to step back. Like, so we've given two examples of this, and you might be saying, well, how does that relate to our kind of shtick and our our story today? And it's mm. it's it's this, right? The stars used to be gods; they're not gods anymore, but they are instruments of God. Right, so that's the the second of taste. The stars used to be gods and used to be super special. Then we found out in scientific evolution they're kind of natural things per se. But the idea is to move to say actually they're not just pure natural things that are just not insignificant, but they are explicitly significant. They become signs. They become instruments of particular providences of God. They symbolize certain things. Now, that's to say we're in a very Augustinian viewpoint because mm. unlike yeah. say say thomas aquinas works a lot with when he thinks about this kind of threefold thing he thinks a lot of causality stuff so he wants when he talks about the stars thomas aquinas usually talks about the causality of of stars how they move things and we talked about that at the very start about you know how the sun really does a lot of things for us causally 
But Augustine, he's not so much interested in a in a causal uh, schema as he is with a semiotic, a sign schema. So Augustine and say Bonaventure and the friend, and the tradition from Augustine is that you look at things in the world and interpret them not as as so much as causes, but as as signs. Because God gives the world as a book to be read, and this, and we screwed up in reading it because of sin, and so the scripture is the book that it helps, to, is the interpretive key, but that still in the book of nature, he's speaking through these things, and we're to be redirected to them. And in both these cases, I think that's what, what we're doing, is saying, right, they're not gods, stars aren't gods, but they're not just matter, that we can forget about, they're actually, because of the fact that they were created and they can be used as signs, because he can use all created things, they have their own specific purchase. So when God appeals in the Job passage to the stars in this, he's not, he couldn't appeal just to any, anything. They become a sign, a manifestation, and are instrumentalized as these particular providential points so that we know God in a particular way from these things. And that makes the stars much more significant than we would have thought, and closer to God than we would have expected given the scientific position. Not that they are God, you separate that, but then you realize that they're, they're still u- they're used by God as they are stars in particular ways. And that's, so that's the Augustinian kind of reading, and I think he talks about this stuff too. But it's, it's a different, it's a semiotic interp- issue, an interpretive issue, as opposed to, say, a causal uh, concern. But it, they're both important. Yeah, that's right. And we can we can actually eloquently link this to to what was probably the first example, you know, from scripture that our listeners were thinking of, which would be the star that the Magi follow, the star from mm-hmm. the east that descends that descends over um the Christ child, the Blessed Virgin Mary and Saint Joseph, the star which descends over the Holy Family and leads uh leads the wise kings who are probably possibly uh themselves astronomers, and they're certainly stargazers to notice this star. Um this star leads them over to Christ. The star is the sign of the interpretive key of the God-made man, of the, the one incarnate who changes all of this uh, understanding of reality. Uh, I mean, there's, there's certainly a uh, link mm-hmm. there, something very beautiful yes, about, of course. Uh, about the showing forth um, we couldn't, and the, you, you, the altering of reality. He uses a star um, for a particular reason. Uh, and instead of, he, you know, he could have used like a camel, but he chose a star for particular reasons. A flock he, of he, seagulls or something. Yeah, and, and yeah. God doesn't do... Now, we don't have to be Leibnizian about this, but, but God does, doesn't do things randomly. He has reasons for them. And so it's, it's worth thinking about what those reasons might be. And the stars are just... Because if you start thinking about how important they are and how godlike in a way they are and how perfectly instrumentalized they can be for God, of course he's going to use stars for this sort of thing. That makes sense. That makes sense. Now, uh, one, of the, one of the other things that I wanted to make sure that I just threw out there in our sort of musings of the stars mm-hmm. is, uh, this be- is this beautiful quote from St. Anthony of Padua. You know, we mm-hmm. sort of wandered. We just touched the Franciscan tradition a little bit there with your reference to St. Bonaventure. Uh, well, so Bonaventure, we, we, of course, finds his tongue, right? Finds, opens up the tomb and pulls out his tongue and holds it up. And he says, oh, golden tongue. So we're all, it's all linked. It's all linked. We, there we go. So, so here we have St. Anthony of Padua, who is a doctor of the church, saying, The saints are like the stars. In his providence, Christ conceals them in a hidden place that they may not shine before others when they might wish to do so. Yet they are always ready to exchange the quiet of contemplation for the works of mercy as soon as they perceive in their heart the invitation of Christ. 
So here he's playing on the the shift from night and day, when stars shine or when they're hidden, and the way that the way that grace works on our life, sometimes making things clear and sometimes hiding things in a in a certain obscurity, um, particularly with the life of holiness. But I I love the, I love this comparison. There's just a direct uh, analogy between the saints and the stars. Well, I mean, how can you so? the mind just immediately runs to this seems it's it's if it's if you ask why did god create the stars and the sun and the moon uh and you it's almost like well he had to for this for this comparison because the the sun is like the sun you know it just happens to work out well in, in english um that god jesus christ and then the moon of course is is often associated with mary of course because she she's smaller she's like but of course and we know even better that um, you could say like they, the ancients thought the Mary, you know, the sun, the moon had like light of its own or such have you. It's complicated. But of course, we yeah, know yeah, like yeah. actually the light of the moon is the reflection of the sun. So it's, of course, Mary receives all her graced light, her holiness from the sun, you know, and therefore the moon receives all its light from the sun. And then, of course, you have these little lights and they're there. Uh, and they're so that the moon, the light of the sun, light of the moon, light of the stars, they're all lights in the skies and they have different proportions and they have d interesting relationships to each other and such. Um, and we don't want to go Mormon on this and like we all have our own. Sort of, but there's there is, you know, there's this clear analogy between, yeah, you know, God, Mary, Jesus, Mary and the saints. Um, and has, I suppose that makes St. Joseph like the North Star or something, the most, the biggest star or something like this. Mm. And then maybe like galaxies are like clusters of the saints from particular religious mm -hmm. orders. And then like the Milky Way, you can, I mean, it's just, <laughs> it's obvious. I want to make, if I make a point about, um, I think, you know, not to poo-poo on the, the moderns too much, because I think you can do a second critique, a, 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 first, a, sec, a first naivete for them as well on this with the stars. Because mm. of course, um, the stars in the modern interpretation can direct one and be instrumentalized towards God as well. The S Galileo was no atheist. He was a devout Catholic. Um, Isaac Newton was no atheist. He was a bizarre version of Christian um, who hated the Trinity, but thought Jesus was, it's bizarre. But many astronomers, of course, were, were Christians and theists and such because while they realized the stars were matter, they also realized there was a great regularity to them. And the stars had a certain mathematical purity that wasn't imaginary in the way that we think of mathematical purity is, but was actually physical. So it has an intelligible structure to it. And one is immediately asked, what is the intelligence behind the intelligible structure? And, and so... Even the mathematical, even if you go, if you, if we, of course, I mean, who's just, you know, F equals G MM over R squared. That's a great, that's the law of gravitation that governs these things and Kepler's laws. But then if you, you say, well, okay, what does that mean? For these guys, that was, that was even clearer. The stars pointed them to God. The stars, again, the stars weren't gods, but they were pointers to gods because of, not in this case, biblical imagery, but because of intelligibility and structure of reason. So that even, even in the even in that, it's not like forget these things. It's look at them and see God and see or the intelligibility there, and then ponder and wonder, where else do you find intelligibility? Is it always in? A, it seems like intelligibility always has to be in an in an intelligence, and that sort of thing. So that even even the the moderns can go back to in a sense the old first uh, go back to a, a second naivete 
you know, and see it for the first time with their own way. The stars evoke wonder. They just do. And to, to pause and to pass over them is, is, to, uh, is to not ask the question, right, like Elliot, to, uh, to, to, allow, to allow the thing speaking to remain unheard. Well, um, you have you have one last quote from Kant. For I do us. because you because you brought up the heart issue. I don't I don't like to talk about Kant, <laughs> but um, but I thought it would. So, no, our, never. Our listeners our listeners are familiar with the philosopher's um, uh, second critique, and uh, at the end of it, in the conclusion, he opens with this line. And it's actually on his it's on his tomb, and it's a it's a line. If anyone knows anything from Kant, this if anyone knows a line of Kant, this is what they have, and this is a this is one of the English translations of it. It says, two things fill the mind ever anew and in ever." Two things fill the mind with ever new and increasing admiration and reverence. You could say wonder. Uh, the more often and more steadily one reflects on them. The starry heavens above me and the moral law within me. That these two things never cease to cause wonder. Starry heavens above and the moral law within. So the head and the heart. And that's, that's Immanuel Kant. So this summer, take a nice walk outside, gaze at the stars, remember their place in Christian tradition, that God has revealed himself to them, speak, or have revealed himself to us through them, you know, insofar as they're taken up in uh, the cause of divine revelation, they're witnessed to in the scriptures, they're not just passing things, uh, they have deep meanings for us. Reflect on the stars, think about the things that they point us to, um, that they point us beyond just the arcs of <laughs> the heavens as we observe them, but... Um, to the even greater invitation of divine life, of life with the saints, with the Blessed Virgin Mary, and with God himself. So thank you all for listening to Godsplaining. We, we appreciate especially those of you who support the podcast. Thanks for your generosity to us. Please pray for us and know of our continued prayers for you. God bless. Thanks for listening to Godsplaining, a work of the Dominican Friars of the province of St. Joseph. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Leave a review on your podcast app and visit us at godsplaining.org.